Good morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with um, just hearts of love and thankfulness for this community, um, for who you are to us personally and who you are to us in this room and as this church. God, we give you this morning, um, rid us of ourselves, God, rid me of me, and um, just I give you my heart, Lord, and my mind as I share what, um, what I feel you've laid in my heart this week. We love you. Amen. I am Lisa Stonehouse. I am the Director of Discipleship and Care here at Harbor Life, and um, I am really thankful I can be here this morning with you. Brent and Jen are on the sunny shores of Mexico, um, having a much-needed getaway for Brent's birthday and their anniversary, and um, I'm just delighted that they can get away, but we have a little sunshine here, so... Did anybody hear the birds singing this morning when they walked in? I don't know what that does to my soul, but when I hear a bird singing in January or February, it's just like, oh, that hope that this winter is not lasting forever. Um, we are nearing the end of our series that we have been in called Undivided. So I'll finish it up next week, but we are in the second to the last week. Um, and as we've walked through these weeks, I think we've realized how our hearts can often be divided, and that creates challenges for us. It can lead to discord in our relationships, and it keeps us from feeling steady and grounded. Do you ever feel like you show up differently at different places? Home, family, friends, work, they can all get different parts of you, and you feel like you're not always fully genuine. You wrestle with who you are and how you show up. But the Bible invites us to live a life that's undivided, to show up authentically in every relationship that we have, to live like Jesus in all the places that we find ourselves. Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That psalm written by King David is a prayer. He's praying, teach me your way, Lord, that I know how to rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart so I can fear your name, so I can trust you. David was asking God to be his teacher, and he said, teach me, Lord. Humbling himself as a student or a learner of the one who knows us. He went on to ask God for an undivided heart, one which was fully committed to him. I believe living into this verse causes our lives to be lives of flourishing, lives that have true soul rest, lives with who we are being undivided, steady, and grounded. Dallas Willard said, A disciple of Jesus today is someone who asks, what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were you or me at home with our families, as a friend, as a neighbor, in the workplace, as a citizen? By reading through the Gospels, knowing how Jesus lived, he'd be undivided, he'd be steady, he'd be grounded. Even as a citizen, 
Because that is where we will be spending our time today, being undivided as a citizen. I feel like I read in a book once, there are three things you never discuss at a dinner table. Religion, money, and politics. I googled it, and I couldn't find the source of that exactly, but there are literally hundreds of articles on that very quote. And they added a few more fun ones too, but... But Jesus didn't shy away from any of those topics or ideas, or Paul or Peter, so I'm thinking neither should we. But let's make some definitions before we begin. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines citizen as the native of a city or an inhabitant who enjoys the freedom and privileges of the city in which he resides. An inhabitant, a dweller in any city, town, or place. In a general sense, a native or permanent resident in a city or country. The same dictionary defines resident as dwelling or having an abode in a place for a continuance of time, but not definite. They're similar, right? But there is a crucial difference. A citizen is permanent. A resident is not. It's not definite. Since I live in Granville, I'm a resident here. I vote here, I pay my property taxes, I use the library, but if I want to move, I can. I live in America, in Granville, but if I want to move to Greece or Zimbabwe, I could. If you've ever lived in a foreign country, you know that Although you may engage and be a part of the culture while you're there, there are certain things, languages, customs, beliefs, that may be in stark contrast to the ones that you are familiar with or accustomed to from your homeland. You're not home. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about our life on earth. He compares it to foreigners in a land that is not ours, awaiting our return home. Our citizenship, Paul argued, was in heaven and not earth. He says, our mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we live in the here and now, living as a resident on earth, while fixing our eyes on citizenship in heaven? It's a tension, isn't it? That feeling of knowing in our bones that this world is not our home. And the older I get and the more life experiences I have, I feel that so deeply. But at the same time, it is kind of all we know as a home because it's where we live. So it's that tension. Our minds can kind of only comprehend that this world is our home, even though it's not. So there is that wrestle and that tension in that. And how do we live into that, having a heart that's undivided? How do we answer Dallas Willard's question, a disciple of Jesus today is someone who asks, what would Jesus do if he were me? And I have wrestled this week with this undivided citizen question. 
And I felt led to, be, to look deeper at being a citizen of heaven while we walk out our days on earth. What does each one look like, the citizen of heaven and a resident of earth? The Bible refers to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're the same thing. But it's the realm or sphere in which God reigns. In Revelation, we triumphantly read that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The kingdom of God is a central theme of the gospel, and it's super prominent in the ministry of Jesus. When we studied Matthew in 2022, we kept pointing back to how Jesus began his earthly ministry by preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. Throughout his ministry, he preached that the kingdom is near us and within us, heaven-brushing earth. In Luke, we read Jesus' words, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 17, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the, kingdom of, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he taught his disciples to tell of the kingdom. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Following his instruction, they also preach the good news about the kingdom of God. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The message of the early church also focused on the kingdom and its king. In Acts we read, But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And again in Acts, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Verses about God's kingdom are sprinkled all throughout Scripture. In 1 Chronicles, yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. In Psalms, justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. In Daniel, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And then the words of Jesus when he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then in the parables in Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom of God with six different things to show the transforming power and the value of the kingdom of God. He compared it with a man who sowed good, beautiful seed in his field in the midst of a world filled with ugliness. A mustard seed with potential to take root and to grow. He compared it to yeast with the power to change lives. A treasure hidden in a field that is valuable. A merchant looking for a pearl that is precious. And a net that gathers all kinds of different fish. Over and over and over throughout scripture, the kingdom of heaven matters. 
It changes us, who we are, our mindset, the way we live, the way we care for others, the way that we walk out our days. A kingdom mindset changes how we view eternity. If we are not walking through life with a kingdom mindset, I think we are missing something. Yet, we live here and now in a world where not everyone operates with kingdom living. How do we carry that role of dual citizenship? How as humans, part of governmental systems, do we walk out the days of our lives as both a citizen of heaven and a resident of this world? With this kingdom mindset as our foundation, what does being a resident of this earth look like? Today, pertaining to that dreaded P word, politics and government. So without delving too deeply into this, but at the same time as we make this shift from talking about the kingdom of heaven to Romans 13, I feel that this matters, that this is important. We have established that we all are kingdom citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have that as our foundation. So let's ask the question, what is our role and responsibility as residents of a country? Whether it's in America or Greece or Zimbabwe, we as believers share in that responsibility. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We have the responsibility to pray for our nation, to pray for our leaders, the ones in authority over us, to pray that our nation prospers, to pray peace over our nation, over our leaders, and over the hearts of the people who call it home. We also have another responsibility, and this is one that sometimes can bring us into controversial feelings. But I'm going to say, we also share in the responsibility to be engaged in the political process as a resident of our nation. Join a Christian group of the party that you believe in, the party that you feel called to. Vote for people who lead by walking out kingdom principles. I am not encouraging you who to vote for or what I think about someone. Absolutely not. But what I am encouraging you to do is to be engaged in a physical way and a prayer-filled way. As a kingdom citizen and a resident of this world, I'm encouraging you to do this because we believe in a God who cares passionately about this world, about his creation, and about the people in it. I'm encouraging you to think about how, as believers in God, we actually have great value to bring into the political arena. We have a deep faith in God which steadies how we do things. We should be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and walk out our behaviors with that as the barometer. 
And we should hold a deep commitment to the kingdom principles, balancing justice and compassion. So let's look at what Paul says to us in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That feels kind of heavy, doesn't it? This passage here is often used by people when their person holds office and maybe not quite as much when their person doesn't. But let's break it down a little bit and see if we can get to the heart of Paul's message. First, governing authorities are from God. Paul is clear about this reality, and it's hard, to, hard not to see it. If we look again at what he says, verse 1, there is no authority except from God. Verse 1 again, the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Verse 2, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. In 4, for it is God's servant, and he is the servant of God. In 6, the authorities are God's servants. In those first few verses, Paul says it really plainly six times. The governing authorities are from God. Paul even said that these are servants of God. How could he say that these rulers are God's servants? Were the rulers of Paul's time Christians? They weren't. They weren't at all. They persecuted Christians horribly. They were corrupt and often terrible towards God's people. So Paul doesn't necessarily, he's not saying that these rulers are followers of God, but rather that they were instituted by God. And that's why he says in verse 1, the authorities that exist are instituted by God. When we acknowledge that God is sovereign, that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, then we're acknowledging that every office of authority is under God's control. Then we understand that not only are positions of authority instituted by God, but also those in those positions are set in place by God. So whether it's your guy or gal as president, governor, mayor, whether we like them or agree with them or even feel respect for them. So an example of this is what God said concerning Pharaoh of Egypt. God said in Exodus 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive a glory by means of Pharaoh and his army, and all the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So God was at work through a ruler like Pharaoh, and he is at work through all of the rulers today as well. They are there by God's authority, and in spite of who they are, or maybe because of who they are, they will be used by God for his purposes and for his glory. He can and he does use those who are in authority to advance his kingdom and care for his children. So first, we acknowledge that governing authorities are from God. And second, that governing authorities are for good. So generally speaking, if something is from God, it is ultimately for our good. This is basic reasoning. If God is our creator and he knows what is best for us, then something that is instituted by him and given for his creation is good for his creation. However, we not only come to the conclusion that governing authorities are good for us by using reason, we can also come to that conclusion by what Paul says. Paul is really clear in verse 4. He says, for it is God's servant for your good. The authority figure that God has put in place to rule over us is being used as God's servant and that governing authority is for our good. And again, that authority figure I'm using is in general. I'm not saying names or any of that. I just, the general principle of this is the authority that God has instituted in America or Greece or Zimbabwe. So hear that in the words that I'm saying. Even leaders that are evil, God uses for his divine purposes and then he replaces. We see that throughout the stories of the Bible and we see that throughout our history books. God has designed authority for our good. Paul is speaking in general terms. He's not saying that there's never an evil ruler. He's not saying that all rulers will follow God. He's not even saying we have to agree with the rulers. And he's also not saying that we have to do anything that violates God's laws or God's principles. Paul is saying that in general, God has designed authority for our good. This Bottom line summarizes Paul's words. We submit to governing authorities because we submit to God. If we trust God and his ways, if we believe that God intends good for us, if we believe that God's word shows us how he wants us to live, then we submit to governing authorities and show honor and respect to those in positions of leadership. This is right for someone who is walking out kingdom living. Paul says in verse 5, Therefore you must submit not only because of wrath, but because of your conscience. He goes on in verse 6 and 7 to say that we should pay our taxes, our tolls and obligations, and that we should respect those who deserve respect and honor those who deserve honor. The reason that we do those things is not because there are always rulers that we like, that they're rulers from our political party, 
or these rulers who will benefit all of us. The reason we respect authority is because it's a better way. And Jesus speaks into that too. He challenged what was wrong in the Roman government, what was wrong with the Pharisees, what was wrong with the religious leaders. Jesus did engage in the politics of his day, but he does it with respect. He does it when it would help and not hinder his kingdom mission. You might wonder, what if a ruler commands us to violate God's law? The Bible addresses this in multiple places, most notable in the apostles in Acts 5, verse 29, when they were commanded not to teach about Jesus any longer. And this is how they replied. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. If we are commanded to go against what makes up the principles of the kingdom of God, you don't have to do that. Obey God rather than people. I've been studying the book of Exodus, and I read this week, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, and they let the male children live. So that's an example of obeying God and his kingdom principles rather than people. Unless the law of governing authorities violates God's law, we are called to honor them. Now some of you are probably thinking, I'm not going to honor anybody that I didn't vote for. And that is a very fair thought. Because, to be honest with you, this was the hardest message I've ever written. I have wrestled in thought so much this week. I didn't even finish until late last night. Dear Chuck got my slides at like 7.15, and Andy was my sounding board at least three times with revisions being sent to him as I worked through this. Because I want to communicate God's heart, what his word says, not mine. When I share scripture, I want it to be God's heart, not what I want scripture to say. So that being said, this was super challenging for me this week to work through. Because there's so much going on in the world, so much unfolding, that I might not agree with or understand. So many things that I wonder, why is it being done this way? It can make you feel helpless or like you're going to go crazy if one more person does something stupid or what you feel is wrong. And then I was given this passage and this topic to speak into. Definitely not my first pick of what to talk about, up here or around a dinner table. But hold that thought for a second, the dinner table one. How do we decipher and follow Paul's words? How do we engage in politics like Jesus did? How do we sit in the uncomfortability and the tension of all of this? And then in my own personal study this week, as I was working through the first several chapters of Exodus, and I read more about Pharaoh. But I'm going to go off topic for just a second. Because when I hear the word Pharaoh, I am catapulted back to Bible camp. 
I think it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. I went with my best friend and her brother. He drove us down to Kalamazoo in his aqua Ford Pinto. We were dreading this week. The topic of it was exploring a biblical worldview. It sounded so boring to us. We stopped at a Kmart on the way for candy and snacks, and we walked down the camping aisle contemplating what our parents know if we ran away and just came home like when we were supposed to. Well, we did not run away. We made it to Gull Lake Bible Camp, and then, as you so often do at camp, you fall in love. Chris Chambers. I wonder if he is as cute as I remember him to be like sneak out of your cabin at night cute. But my best friend and his best friend went with us, so it was all pure and G-rated, and it was just whispering in the darkness. Well, as the week drew on, went on, um, a talent show was being planned. And this was going to be the highlight of the week. The boys' cabin that Chris Chambers was in decided to perform the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Oh Baby, Let Your People Go. Now, remember, this was Bible camp, and it was the early 90s, so that was cool for them to do, I guess. So the big night arrived, and the cabin of boys walked on stage. Jeans, tight-rolled, of course, white t-shirts, turbans made from white towels, wearing sunglasses. The crowd went wild. My heart exploded. And last night, I spent about two hours going through my bin of pictures because I knew I had two of them, and I found them. Chuck, can you show it? (laughs) And then the next one. This is Chris Chambers at the microphone. Oh. The next morning, the camp ended. It was a perfect ending to a perfect week. We loaded up in that aqua pinto and we headed home. And every once in a while, when I'm reminiscing with my best friend, we wonder what on earth happened to Chris Chambers. So 30 years later, this is still the picture I get in my head every time I hear the word Pharaoh. So anyway, back to what I really spent time thinking about this week with the real Pharaoh. How terrible of a leader he was how unfair, how cruel, how self-serving, making decisions for his nation that were pretty terrible, making a declaration and then going against it. Yet, what I noticed was in all of the interactions that Moses had with him, Moses was respectful. Moses honored the position that Pharaoh held, a position of authority. Moses didn't agree with Pharaoh in the way he governed. Moses even had God on his side who didn't agree with Pharaoh in the way he led his country or treated his people. And yet, as Moses fought for what was right, what he believed in, he did it respectfully. That makes you think for a minute, doesn't it? makes me want to evaluate how I speak of or what my attitude is towards those in government that I might not agree with. So if we continue reading Romans 13 in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we're back to that neighbor thing again, aren't we? Of all the laws, of all the kingdom principles that are summed up with these words, love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy to love your neighbor when they believe what you believe or when you don't know what they believe. It's easy to chat at your kids' basketball games or at the water cool over surface stuff. But what about when the conversation takes a turn and we realize someone we really like believes in something or someone that we really don't like? What about when you found out you voted for somebody different or if their views on the immigration policy or abortion are different from yours? What if you think their candidate yard signs would make fantastic kindling for your bonfire? What then? How do you live as a citizen of heaven with an undivided heart? Now remember when I said this is definitely not my first choice of what to talk about up here or around a dinner table, and I asked you to hold on to that thought. This is the question I want us to ponder. What if loving our neighbor means eating more meals together? What if loving our neighbor means pulling up a chair, sitting down, and looking one another in the eyes? What if loving your neighbor means laying aside your agenda and listening, fully listening, being present, hearing them share the why and the what of what they believe, even if it could not be more different than what you believe? What if loving your neighbor means laying down your position and holding a heart posture of humility? What if loving your neighbor looks like showing honor and respect as you hear them share? You don't have to change your mind or your views or what you believe. But I wonder if we need to change our behavior. What if loving our neighbor means we recognize that every single human that walks or has walked this planet was created in the image of God? That they have an identity from God just because they were made in his image. And then as followers of Jesus, our identity deepens by being known intimately by God and personally as his child, whether they vote blue or red. I said earlier, I encourage you to think about how as believers in God, we actually have great value to bring into politics because we have a deep commitment to the kingdom principles of justice as well as compassion. And that is a beautiful way to love our neighbor. At the beginning of this message, we looked at the quote, a disciple of Jesus today is someone who asks, what would Jesus do if he were me? Over and over and over in the Gospels, we find Jesus eating with all different kinds of people. 
people who shared the same beliefs with him, and so, so many more of people who did not. Jesus sat at a lot of tables with a lot of different people, and he never changed or wavered who he was. He never compromised his holiness. He never compromised his commitment to his convictions. But somehow, people always got up from those places, changed, because Jesus stopped. He sat with them, and he did the simple act of sharing a meal. He never compromised his deep commitment to walking out the fruits of the Spirit or showing justice and compassion and meeting people where they were. And because of that, that leads to sharing hearts. And that leads to the kingdom of heaven being shared. We are citizens of heaven and we are residents of this earth. Citizens with our gaze fixed on the prize, the gift and the promise of heaven, bringing heaven to earth because it gives hope in an ugly world. Because living this way causes us to grow. Because knowing there's a heaven changes lives. Heaven is valuable and precious, and heaven is for everyone. Living with the lens of having heaven citizenship helps us journey well as residents of this earth. Jesus isn't asking us to mirror the world's way and the customs, but to live steady and grounded as kingdom citizens. As believers, we need to make radical adjustments to how we live and move and behave and respect and love if we want to see others come to know and trust the one true king of this world. We must make radical adjustments to how we love our neighbor. This requires a shift in our allegiance, not pledging an unwavering devotion to a flag or a political party, but focusing our whole devotion on a much higher call. The answer to that call of Jesus when he said, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is why we honor authority. That is why we obey God. That is why we love our neighbor. It's for the kingdom here and now. It's for the kingdom that Jesus talks about that's in our midst. And it's for the kingdom of heaven, our eternal home. We can live as a citizen of heaven and a resident of this world with an undivided heart. And we can only do that when we lock eyes with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just pray for humility to come over us, Lord, as we learn how to be a better neighbor, as we learn how to love our neighbor. God, give us humility to honor and respect those, Father, that are in authority over us. God, teach us and lead us and guide us to become more like you to help us love others and to help us to advance your kingdom in your precious name.